What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Rockcast podcast brought to you by Onyx Hunt Maps and Rockslide.com. Jordan here. And today we have a super exciting guest to me. Uh, Daniel Brannigan is on talking about his new book, uh, So You Want to Hunt the West for Elk, uh, Low Country Hotspots. We talked to him a while back about his mule deer book we went into in detail. Um, I really like the way Dan approaches a lot of this, these things. Uh, you know, with the mule deer one, he really talked through like how the mule deer rumen uh, like changes and things and, and how that affects what forage they eat and what time of year and how you find them and all that stuff. So uh, this time we talked about low country hotspots and I really like the way that he went through it and especially uh you know the history knowledge that he gave us before he even gets into the to uh you know the elk stuff specifically so uh wealth of knowledge tons to learn here and with that i'll kick it over to the conversation with dan all right dan well super happy to have you back on. I really liked our mule deer podcast that we did a while back. I still reference back to that every once in a while, especially with season just around the corner. So I appreciate you hopping on to talk about elk this time. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, your new book for for elk hunting in uh, lower elevation hotspots, can you just talk about know why where did that idea come from to write the book and just you know the focus of it and and all that yeah absolutely so just a short summary uh, this book's about finding hunting and recovering elk especially bull elk in the changing environment of the rocky mountains of the west and i'm going to focus today on the changing environment and the factors that are causing elk redistribution changes in migrational behavior. And it's something that if you don't live out west, if you don't study uh, elk year round, it's very difficult to understand these rapid changes in elk uh, behavior that's going on, their rapid adaptability. And since I published my Mule book a couple of years ago, I've been following more social media on hunting, uh, both posts from resident hunters and non-resident hunters, and you know, a lot of hunters are just trying to find elk. There's a lot of posts asking for help on locating elk. And elk are amazing creatures. And what makes them unique mammals, ungulates, I guess, is that they have a very robust digestive system. In fact, they eat 313 different plants. And what elk can do, this is a lot different than mule deer, but they can switch from grazing on grasses and forbs to browsing on shrubs and then vice versa. So they can inhabit a wide variety of different habitat types, and that makes them difficult to find. So uh, as far as low elevation habitat, I switched uh, to hunt uh, in, at low elevation elk uh, from the mountains about 15 years ago, and uh, been very successful, and we'll talk about, uh, about that. But often the response that I see in some media when people ask for you know, where are the elk or they're coming out west or they live out west or even they're hunting and they have cell phone coverage i'm not seeing elk a lot of them are like two different type of responses from other other people one is hey if you're not seeing elk you need to go higher uh, and once you get higher go like a thousand feet more than you than you than you think you can yeah. or go back five miles and when you go back five miles start hunting and then go back further and both of these are true in some cases but in many cases they're actually not true yeah, I I think so, that certainly some people think that, you know, elk just inhabit the mountains and like straight up and down and it can be, you know, you just have to climb and climb and climb and go as far back more than anybody else to get to find them. And that's just simply not true. That's why one of the reasons I was, I've been, uh, you know, really interested in your book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so exactly. So when people think of elk hunting, other than, you know, late season when the snow dries them down, but normally you would think of traditional high elevation hunting in uh, conifer dominated montane forests where you have alpine and subalpine meadows. So you think elk are very high and, and there's certainly elk in those, in those habitat types as well. 
But I think it's interesting to start by looking at uh, the journals of Lewis and Clark, because, you know, is this high elevation habitat, is that preferred habitat for elk, or were they kind of driven to these areas to, to survive by the settlers? And we actually have a lot of information on that based on the journals of Lewis and Clark from 1805 and 1806. And I wanted to start off by reading uh, a couple different quotes from their journals. The first one was uh, both on the west, westward journey. First one was on April 25th, 1805. So Meriwether Lewis wrote, I ascended the hills from whence I had a most pleasing view of the country, particularly of the wide and fertile valleys formed by the Missouri and the Yellowstone rivers. So we know exactly where that is located at. It's just across the Montana border in uh, what's now North Dakota. And then it goes on in that journal entry to say, the whole face of the country was covered with herds of buffalo, elk, and antelope. Then as they moved uh, further west on September 18th, 1805, uh, William uh, Clark wrote, while crossing what is now the mountains of Idaho, the Clearwater National Forest, he wrote, uh, the want of provisions together with the difficulty of passing those immense mountains dampened the spirits of the party. I proceeded on in advance with six hunters to try and find deer or something to kill. Saw deer, and it goes on, saw deer, saw a sign of deer and nothing else, made 32 miles and encamped on a bold running creek, passing to the left, which I call Hungry Creek, as at that place we had nothing to eat. And it's interesting, if you look at the journals, when they crossed uh, the Rocky Mountains of Idaho, <clears throat> they really survived on Indian dogs, otherwise they actually may have starved. Wow. And so what the journals show, and they've been well studied because Lewis and Clark uh, took journals, plus three or four of their men actually had this as well, both going west and back east, is that by far they saw the most elk in the plains followed by uh, quite a few elk in the Pacific coast, but they saw a few elk in the mountains. Uh, the whole Columbia Basin, they didn't actually see one elk, and they did see some of the Rocky Mountains, but only a few. And this is exactly backwards to what we're observing in modern times, or at least what I'm talking about 10 to 15 years ago in modern times. If you look at that first April 25th day, uh, there was a lot of elk on the border of Montana and North Dakota. There's no elk there today but they are moving east. And if you look at that second day in the, in the Clearwater National Forest, you know, this part of Idaho was some of the top elk hunting uh, area for decades and decades. It's actually dropped off a little bit, but elk are certainly plentiful there. So what we're observing today is actually backwards to what habitat the elk inhabited 200 years ago. So interesting. We're, we're starting to get elk here in Nebraska. You know, definitely, I would say probably 10 years ago, we started having them show up every once in a while. And now it's like, it's not as big of an event to see an elk because they just have more of a presence. Yeah, that's happening range wide. And, uh, and I, I'd like to talk next. That's a great segue into, you know, why are the elk changing? Why are they moving into uh, different environments? And there are three main reasons. And I think it's important to understand these reasons and you can understand why it's uh, good hunting to hunt them at low elevation. So the first one is the habit, habitat changes. And if you look at uh, the public ground in the West and there's a lot of public ground, uh, what you find is that it's been degraded over time. And you have a reduction in habitat fertility and forage productivity. And this is a combination of of the factors of fire, of fire suppressions, not allowing fires to happen, and inability to log in many cases, even the beetle killed areas. And also probably one of the biggest factors is the expansion of noxious weeds. And if you look at uh, the public ground in the West in the Rocky Mountains, noxious weeds are expanding at a rate of 4,600 acres per day. So there's been an enormous explosion of noxious weeds. And part of this is just due to the popularity of the West. You know, the West is a very popular destination these days, not just for hunters, but mountain bikers and hikers and just explorers. And what they found is that uh, all these people that are now visiting the West, they're going deep in the back 
country, and they're actually carrying noxious weed seeds on their clothing. I mean, not on purpose, but it, it sticks to your clothing and then it drops off. And that is one reason why it's expanding so rapidly out west on public ground. And then in parallel, what's happening is that on private land, uh, private land is being enhanced for wildlife. So in private land out west and all the western states, weeds have to be controlled or you'll be fined. And also there's a pride of ownership to, to control weeds. And then there's just so many programs, state and federal programs to enhance uh, habitat, the well-known conservation reserve program. There's also a riparian version. There's wildlife habitat incentive programs and other programs. And it's important to note that the way the West was homesteaded was that, you know, it was all public ground or undefined ground and it was homesteaded. And then once the land was homesteaded, then you had to generally prove it up at, by staying on it for five years. And so you really couldn't homestead way back in the mountains or at the top of the mountains. So where private land was homesteaded, where it's being improved, is generally at low elevation and not at high elevation. So that is the, one of the first factors which are forcing elk to want to move down to the low elevation. Uh, the second one is the changes in land ownership, which is happening all over the West. And I have one study that I referenced. I have a lot of these studies in, in, in my book referenced. But the first one, or the one I want to show here, was a survey done on uh, US Forest Service and BLM grazing permits in 11 Western states. And this was a pretty broad study with 2,000 different uh, grazing permits. And when you think of grazing permits, you really think traditional ranchers because they're the ones that have livestock. So a traditional rancher is, are those that have a primary income from livestock and farming income, from traditional mm -hmm. livestock and farming. And so you would think that maybe like that'd be close to 100%, but what they found was less than half of the grazing permits went to traditional ranchers. Instead, they found two other classes of landowners that they identified. Uh, the second one was hobbyist landowners, and they're about 45% of landowners now, and they're ones that have outside jobs. And so the traditional ranch income is just supplemental to their income, mm -hmm. and, it does, and they don't have to make money on the ranch to own that land. Uh, the third type is trophy ranch rancher landowners is about six percent and a lot of these are non-resident uh, very rich individuals where they're not worried about even making income from the land so what happens is that with changing uh, landowners you're getting a change in viewpoint now if you look at traditional ranchers uh, in the past even today uh, you know, margins are low in ranching. It's a, it's a tough lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And elk, you know, elk are very good eaters. I mean, elk uh, might eat up to 25 pounds of forage on the range. So they're, com they're competing with cattle. They're depleting the range for the, for the cattle. They break down fences, they get into haystacks. So elk really are not wanted on a traditional uh, a ranch land. But if you're a hobbyist landowner or a trophy ranch landowner, uh, elk are, are very much desired because elk uh, provide recreational value, not just for hunting, because many of those don't hunt, but also just to spot the elk, and also economic value. The studies have been done, you know, if you have private land and you have elk on that land, that land is, quite frankly, worth a lot more because of that, because of the wildlife. Mm -hmm. So contrast that to the settlers after, when the European settlers came through after Lewis and Clark, you know, every time elk would come near a town or a settlement, obviously they would be shot with no hunting laws. Elk are great eating, uh, you need to survive. And so they were always driven out. And uh, the third area, which is a, a big factor, is the reintroduction of the wolf to the West. Uh, that happened, and I was in Idaho at this time. It started in 1995 through 1997 with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service bringing uh, wolves into Yellowstone Park. And uh, Wolves can, you know, the remarkable creature on their own, but they can pretty much eat anything they want to eat, big and small animals. But make no mistake that that the wolves in the Rocky Mountains focus very much so on elk. And so various studies have been done on this, on the, on the wolf diet. So I have a couple examples here. So wolves in Yellowstone Park and the surrounding areas, uh, the wolf diet consists of more than 96% elk in the winter. 89% elk in the spring and 85% elk in the summer. 
Each wolf kills an average 1.8 elk per month, and that's 18 to 22 elk per year. Uh, and one other, one other fact, if you look at another study I referenced, if you go to central Idaho, which is several hundred miles away, just so you know it's not a Yellowstone Park thing, there's a four-year study that was done. And in central Idaho, the wolf diet consists of, on average, throughout the year, 80% elk. Hmm. So these wolves that have been released uh, are keen on and uh, in hunting and killing elk. Man. And why this is important is, yes, yeah, remarkable. I, I, before I looked at the numbers, I would have thought they'd be eating a lot more deer and moose mm -hmm. and other small game, but that's not what the data actually shows. Gosh, so crazy. the key to understand, yeah, it's amazing. The key to understand elk is that elk have an amazing circulatory respiratory system. So one of the elk's main um, survival mechanisms is they can simply escape and run away from all danger. So if you spook an elk and trigger them and they run out, they're going to run for many miles, even in the roughest country. So if you spook an elk herd and they run out, there's no use even following them if you're hunting because they're gone. But wolves are well matched to pursue elk and they can then neutralize their main survival advantage. They, they can keep up with the elk. Yeah. And another, another key factor is that there's significant differences found between what hunters kill for elk and what wolves kill. And so there's been a lot of studies done on this. So if you look at hunters, they uh, harvest elk primarily in the most productive age range from two to nine years. So even if you like you have a cow tag, you're not gonna shoot a calf because you want a full-size elk. And not many bulls live to nine years, you know, they get harvested. So what you find is that the older cows are the ones that are greater than nine years or older. And they have survived many hunting seasons and they, they have learned to avoid hunters. Uh, I've referenced a study where they did a whole study and not one of the older cows even was taken in that study, about a three-year study. But wolves kill mostly the young and the old. So they kill the elk calves and they kill the old mature elk. And, and this is because these young and old elk just don't have the endurance to escape the attack of a wolf pack. The key here though, is that these mature cows, because they're often the matriarchs of the herd, they're the ones that are leading the herd around. Uh, if they survive the attack, they will then move that herd out of uh, these high wolf areas into low wolf areas, uh, which is often at low elevation. In fact, there's been various studies that show that, um, that elk and also uh, moose and other big game animals, when there are apex predators around like wolves, they view humans as anti-predatory shields because wolf and humans have never gotten along. And so when wolves move down into settled areas, they get driven out. And uh, the elk know that these are low wolf areas. And they actually, in many cases now, seek out these more developed areas uh, where there's high wolf densities present. Mm. All right, Onyx Hunt Maps. One of the probably most used tools uh, that you've got, you know, for apps and things. Um, gosh, we have been hitting it pretty hard trying to get into some different areas, trying to find some like hidden access or tougher to access trails to get into tougher to access areas. And Onyx Hunt Maps definitely lets us do that. If you use code ROCKCAST at checkout, you will get 20% off of your first subscription for Onyx Hunt. So go check that out, onyxhuntmaps.com forward slash hunt. The next up is coffee, Black Rifle Coffee Company for every day on the mountain and here at home. I like Black Rifle Coffee, really like the AK Espresso. It's my favorite. And then on the mountain, um, they do have instance, but I really prefer the steeping bags. It's a little bit of a lighter roast. Um, the the instance are kind of a darker, more bold roast, but um, those steeping bags are really light to carry around, really easy to use. Um, put them in for as long as you want to get your desired uh, strength, I guess, of coffee, of darkness and things. And yeah, go roll from there. So 
go visit blackriflecoffee.com. Use code ROCKSLIDE at checkout. You will get 20% off your first order or your first order of the subscription-based service that they have where they ship coffee right to your door. Now, have you guys heard of ActiveJunkie.com yet? I talked about it a bit, um, and if you haven't looked at it yet, you need to go to ActiveJunkie.com forward slash ROCKSLIDE. Give it a look. Basically what it is, they have a website that is full of stores and like retailers and brand stores themselves and basically what they do is they give you cash back for purchasing through the active junkie website to those brands and retailers so they have like 1500 of them uh there's tons of things to choose from from shields some of my favorites uh moose jaw uh, Yeti is a good one. Um, they have Goodyear tires even, and then they have booking.com on there also. So if you're booking a trip, you can get a little bit of cash back through that. So go to activejunkie.com forward slash rockslide, sign up for an account, go uh, through a brand or retailer that you want to make a purchase like you usually would. And then every 90 days, um, Active Junkie will send you either a check in the mail to your mailbox for your cash back or they will deposit it into your PayPal account. So it is truly cash. It is not just points that you get on a website that you can only use on that website. So um, you can stack it with coupons from the retailer you're purchasing through or discounts or sales or whatever. So you can really stack on those deals if uh, you spend a little time and do it right. So activejunkie.com forward slash rockslide give it a look now i love gear i think we all love gear clothing is one of those things that we all love uh, first light hunting apparel has a ton of it for whatever pursuit that you're in now they have new waterfowl gear that just came out uh, they have a whole white tail line and then of course they have their western big game line that is ever expanding um, by the year so this year they have their new omen rain gear out i used it last year in alaska on my sheep hunt really awesome stuff uh, they also have an origin hoodie out so little uh, beef up from the calamus that they had nice new face fabric super comfy um, gives you some more features like a built-in face mask which is nice We've got some new whitetail stuff for 2022 that's gonna get kicked out here soon and then the long-awaited waterfowl line has also been released you can find that all at firstlight.com and with that, we're going to roll back into this episode. Interesting, because elk are now moving in, like you mentioned, in Nebraska, but all throughout the West. They're moving into areas where they haven't been for more than 100 elk generations. If you look at where they're moving to, they're moving exactly to their traditional rangeland, as shown by uh, the journals of Lewis and Clark. So it's just amazing. And if you look at what's happening, especially in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, these are states uh, where the wolf populations have taken hold. And so it's accelerating in these states. But wolves are spreading out, and they're now found in Colorado and, and Oregon and California and Utah in small numbers, but they're spreading out. And so this effect is going to occur range-wide in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. And another factor that's ongoing, uh, then we'll get on to actual low elevation hotspots and hunting, is that elk are changing their migratory patterns because of all these factors. And so there's been a remarkable amount of data that's now been revealed by GPS coloring. So when you think of elk, the traditional view, is you think of elk uh, obviously wintering at low elevation in basins and valleys and in river corridors, and then when the snow melts in the spring, uh, these are called migratory elk. These elk migrate up, they follow the snow melt up, taking advantage of the, the, the green up, up as the snow melts, uh, taking advantage first of the, the, new, the new grass, and then the forbs that come up later in the summertime, the key on the summertime. And then these uh, migratory elk uh, remain at high elevation until the snow finally dries them back down to the winter range. So that's migratory elk. And so a, a big study was done in Montana uh, over a wide area and 16 different herds of elk. And they found that in all 16 different herds, there were each of these had migratory elk. But they also found that there was also resident elk and intermediate elk present. And so the resident elk are elk that just remained at low elevation. 
Uh, they don't no longer migrate up to the high country. Now they're not stationary because they'll move up and down the valley, they'll move up and down a river system, but they're not going up to high elevation. They're taking advantage of all the food resources at low elevation. And there's also intermediate elk, and these elk have intermediate behavior. So intermediate elk uh, spend their winters at low elevation. They follow the green up to high elevation. But as soon as that range starts drying out at high elevation, and depending on the rain for the year, it's around from mid-August mid to mid-September, uh, these elk will come down and they will come down all the way from very high elevation all the way down to low elevation. And the interesting thing about the study was out of these 16 separate herds, 13 of these had intermediate herds or in intermediate elk herds and uh, 12 of these had full-time resident herds. And one other fact is six of these herds of uh, the 16, the migratory elk was now less than half yeah. of the makeup mm. of the elk in those areas. And this is just remarkable. And you know, a lot of this information, you can find bits and pieces, but you don't really find, I don't think a book like this has been published, all the information in here showing these changes going on uh, with elk in the West. And I have one more quote, which kind of sums it up. It's from the 2021 Hunting Outlook in Idaho. Um, we have great biologists and they just kind of hit a home run here. So I wanted to just read a short paragraph. It's like sums it up. So I'll just read that. Hunter harvest of elk in Idaho is near the highest it's ever been with some caveats. Some of that harvest has shifted from the traditional backcountry and wilderness areas to more front country. Uh, now, front country in Idaho is, a, is mainly the southern areas. So it's the areas where you're outside the mountains and more into the farmland country. And I'll continue now. And recent harvest also include a higher number of depredation hunts where elk are damaging crops. Elk herds may leave an area and find a new one and not return. And when that new area happens to be agricultural land where elk damage crops, Biologists face an enviable task of trying to change elk behavior or significantly reduce those herds. While otherwise prime elk hunting terrain on public land may have fewer animals. Yeah. Yeah, going to those green ad fields. And this is what's going on. And that's one reason why uh, a lot of people, more hunters are, is, a, is a reason as well, are seeing less elk because the elk are not using the same areas they have for the last, you know, many, many decades, last 50 years. So what do we do to find those things, Dan? Yeah, so we can discuss my book on finding and hunting low elevation hotspots. So first, a, a definition. Uh, when I speak of low elevation, it's really relative to the surrounding country. What I'm talking about is the base elevation, uh, the valley floor, essentially. So you're in southwest Idaho, for example. You're about 2,500 feet, depending on where you're at. I'm in southeast Idaho. We're about 4,500 feet in elevation. If I move up to uh, north of here in Island Park, it's about 6,000 feet elevation. So it's just the base elevation relative to the valley floor. And as far as the hotspot, I'm really looking for high elk densities. And I define that loosely as greater than 25 elk per square mile. So country that will hold, consistently hold elk uh, of 25 elk per square mile during the fall hunting season. And this is about 10 times the average elk density in Colorado, which is the highest elk density of the Rocky Mountain State, about 100 times that of Nevada, at least, the density. Gosh, that's crazy. So, and in many cases, uh, once you find a hot spot, it's going to be, you know, much higher than that, but that's just kind of a definition. So as we discussed in the background, uh, the elk are returning to their former habitats, and that can be in the prairie, in the plains, in the desert areas. You know, we have a large desert area outside of where I live, and I can tell you the first 25 years I lived here, I maybe had one case where I almost hit elk uh, out there, 
But this last year, I've had like five different times where I've almost hit elk in the middle of the desert. I mean, there's not a, a, a bush, there's not a tree for I don't know how many miles. They're in the road, you're coming across here at night, and they're all on the road in very close calls. So they return to all these areas, but my book, I focus on riparian areas because these are areas that will consistently hold elk to these high density hotspots. Now, riparian area, uh, there's many definitions, but one way to look at that, probably the best way, is out west is obviously an arid climate, so everything dries out. If you look outside right now, it's all brown if it's not watered. And so a riparian area is essentially that green zone which extends out from the river uh, during the late summer and early fall. So it's that, that green zone, and it really is some of the most productive habitat or, or the most productive habitat out west. You have abundant water, you have abundant food and cover, and riparian areas have abundant browse species. You know, you usually have cottonwood trees, but you almost always have different types of willows. There's a lot of different types of brush willows. And willows are interesting uh, brush species, so highly preferred by elk. But also, you know, we have these cyclic drought years and wet years. And so willows are always trying to expand out from the river during a wet year. And then they die back when, it, when, it, when you have a drought year. So you have a lot of brush, thick brush, and then it regrows and dies and regrows. And so a lot of that becomes almost impenetrable. You have various other good browse species like crown bushes or starburstberry, uh, gooseberries in some areas, which I always fight because they have thick thorns that, that just tear you up. And they have adjacent grassy, uh, grazing rich uh, grassy areas in natural fields in their bottom areas. A lot of times the water table is shallow, so you have sub-irrigation, natural sub-irrigation. So you have grass that is commonly five or six feet tall. Um, because of the way the West was settled, uh, you have a lot of uh, different landowners. You know, a lot of people don't hunt, so they have these areas are not hunted, so it's usually kind of protected from hunting. It's near people, so you have the low wolf zones, which act as anti-predatory shields. So they have everything that they need to stay in the area and they will stay there, you know, pretty much all fall unless they're driven out of an area in these areas. And as you alluded to earlier, that if there's agricultural fields nearby, they become supercharged hotspots. So you're really looking for riparian areas that have irrigated agricultural fields with one mile from the river, but up to two miles is fine because elk move out at night. Uh, they've learned that hunters don't hunt elk at, at night, so they'll move up widely through the, through the fields at night. Now, the interesting thing about finding these areas, and I have this data in my book, is that if you look at the Rocky Mountain states, there's over 100,000 miles of rivers and streams that go through agricultural areas. So it's a lot more than what you might expect because you think of Rocky Mountain states being dry areas, but we have a lot of rivers. Just pulling up some data. So if we look at Colorado, uh, there's 107,000 total river miles, river and stream miles, but there's 19,000 miles of river that go through agricultural okay. lands. So yeah, there's a lot more than you think. And so there are a lot of hot spots which you can find that can be quite attractive. Yeah, I know we're gonna to get to the scouting portion here too, but just those areas that you're you're talking about, like a lot of those are in or in around like private landowners uh, parcels and things. So are you using like Onyx to help you navigate around those? Yeah, absolutely. Any, any, uh, Electronic tools, paper map tools, Onyx is, is a great tool. Uh, I can briefly cover, uh, I was going to focus more on Absolutely. how to identify these areas, but, but as far as getting onto the ground, uh, we, can, we can talk about that as well. You know, the, there's a, a lot of a BLM land that's landlocked throughout these river systems. 
And this is because the way that the West was homesteaded, that the land had to be had to be you know claimed, and you had to prove the claim. And not all the land was claimed, and not everyone spent five years on their land to prove up the claim. So I have some data here. In uh, on the BLM public land, there's about 8,700 miles, according to BLM, of riparian river habitat. And this riparian river habitat can be anywhere from typically a half mile to uh, a mile wide. So that's about 1.5 million acres of BLM land. Now, some of this you can wade to, and some of these are landlocked and you may have to float to get to, but you can find those through Onyx, yeah. uh, those areas. There's uh, 1.5 million acres of riparian habitat located in US National Forest land in the Rocky Mountain states. And then, and I have all this in my book, there's also innovative ways like uh, there's often a state ground in public fishing areas. A lot of these public fishing areas, hunting is legal and they can be quite attractive for elk. There are uh, private ranches open to hunting in, uh, I think every state of Nevada has these. Uh, these are programs like Access Yes, Walk-In Access, Open Gate, Block Management. Every state kind of has a different name for it. And some of these are quite big ranches. I, I hunt on, on these ranches and, uh, you know, some of these maybe 5,000, 10,000 acres. There's even bigger ones and a lot bigger in Arizona and New Mexico. So they'll have low elevation areas and high elevation areas. And you know, a lot of people will be going up high and, and a lot of those elk might be tucked away in some of these uh, mm -hmm. uh, lower, lower areas. So one of the things that you want to look for besides agricultural land is the type of river as well as important because uh, all water is attractive, but we're not talking mountain streams with, you know, fast flowing mountain streams because in the mountains you have the trees that come right down to the river. There's little transition habitat. Uh, river gorges support limited riparian areas. So you really are looking for uh, uh, rivers that meander through broad valley floors. And these can be wide rivers or narrow rivers. Uh, wide rivers are really those, I define it based on my parian area. It would generally have uh, one half mile or more uh, on each side of the, of the river with riparian areas. So about a mile wide swath of uh, green area. And what you find in these larger wide rivers is you commonly have resin elk. These are elk that will just stay there year round. The country's big enough. But also um, there's narrow rivers, and these are rivers that typically have about a quarter mile on each side of the river of riparian areas. And these often hold intermediate elk. I've hunted both of these uh, types of rivers for elk, but I probably hunt more of the narrow rivers um, that have the intermediate elk these days. Gotcha. Awesome. And yeah. I, I think you mentioned Scouting. Scott. Yeah, scouting of these areas. So, you know, if you're on a wide river with a lot of riparian habitat and you have resident elk uh, year round, then you certainly can find the tracks and the droppings and you can identify uh, those elk uh, pretty easily. But if you're, if you're actually hunting intermediate elk, and so there's a lot of intermediate elk uh, west uh, these elk are not even on the river system all summer. As I said, they're actually at high elevation and they don't come down until the range up at high elevation dries out. So typically that's like mid-August, mid-September. So the first week of September is a typical time when these elk will start dropping down. So in this case, if you did your pre-season scouting, what you would find is you wouldn't find any elk. Uh, but if you actually started during the season, like both season starts in Idaho, August 30th, it runs to the month of September, uh, these elk will start transitioning down. And they're actually pretty easy to find by scouting because usually in the river bottoms, you have some higher elevation areas, some ridge lines, and some sagebrush step areas. And so you can use your spotting scopes, your binoculars, because these elk will be often coming to feed agricultural fields, but they may leave those fields, you know, when, within the first half hour after first light. So you have to be up early. You can spot them from a long, long ways and they stand out in the alfalfa field. 
you can see where they're going into the riparian areas to uh, hold up for the day. Yeah. So uh, when I look for elk on these narrow rivers, especially intermediate elk, for summertime scouting, I'm really looking for a lot of times old rubs, because they make a lot of rubs during the September rut. And uh, sometimes you'll find wallows. And uh, then you can identify promising areas where they would come to come down all the mountains uh, during the, the fall hunting season. Yeah, I think sometimes you got to really rely on your glass and step back with some of those access yes programs, especially because they might not even open until season opens. That's correct. Yeah, some you can scout early and some you don't have yeah. access until hunting Something season to know. starts. Yeah. That's exactly correct. And it's really, I mean, this took, is all kind of nice and buttoned up in the book, but it really took 15 years to figure a lot of this out. For example, I'll be bull hunting next week in Idaho and looking forward to getting out. So I've had a couple game cameras out. That's another way to do scouting uh, in a low elevation uh, hotspot area. And, but these are intermediate elk. So I don't expect to see elk now in having the cameras out for a couple months. I've got one picture of one elk, uh, a spike elk, and it seems like the spike elk come down earlier than the, than the herds and then the uh, mature bulls. But I saw one, I think it was August 7th. So that's the first elk that I saw. I do have a couple nice uh, four point mule deers. Uh, one is uh, like a five by five uh, count. And uh, pretty excited about that. It's, it's a Pope and Young, uh, mule deer, so maybe I'll, I'll get that, but I'll be primarily elk hunting. But it's interesting because you really have to understand what the animals are doing. Uh, these mule deer, which we discussed in the mule deer podcast, I fully expect them to behave normally and they're gonna be leaving uh, this first week in September. So I only have a few days to try to get one. And they'll be going up to the high elevation, the mountains, their, their antlers start to harden. They become very secretive and they're gonna be leaving this country at about the same time that these bull elk, large bull elk and herds of elk are gonna be moving down from the high country into the river bottom systems. So, you know, preseason scouting can get you all backwards to, to think what's going on, but the mule deer bucks are gonna be transitioning up as the, mule, as the elk are transitioning down. That's what I expect to see next So interesting. Home. One of the things that I liked most about our mule deer podcast that we did was when you explained uh, how a mule deer stomach works <clears throat> and how they, you know, our grass is early season and then they transition over into like forbs and then they transition over again. And it's interesting to hear how elk can kind of eat all those things all the time. Yeah, they can transition back and forth. And even if you look at wintering areas, I mean, they can be 100% browse if they're in the river bottoms. They can be 100% grazing if they're in grasslands. Uh, for the winter area, like the whole winter. They're a very robust system. And a mule deer with a small rumen is just the opposite. They have to be very selective feeders. Really fascinating to, to learn yeah, more and more is. about these it really is. animals. So uh, you want to move on to like how, you know, how to hunt them and how you prefer to hunt elk? Yeah. So I hunt uh, the elk in these low elevation hotspots much differently than I used to hunt elk in the mountains. And this is mainly because I hunt small properties. Now, if you have a large property on the river bottom, that's great if you have access to that. I don't, so I'm always hunting small little properties that I can find access to, uh, typically as low as 40 to 50 acres in size. Uh, 100 acres would be even better. So normally when you think elk, you think thousands of acres, you think of traveling many miles, to find them, but I focus on the small little hotspot areas. And you don't need much because if you can identify a hotspot and get into an area, again, the elk have food, water, cover security, often low hunting, low predation by wolves. They have everything they need. So they're not gonna be, uh, they're not gonna leave the area unless they're triggered and, and driven out. So the main strategy is what I call stealth hunting tactics because you never want to let them know that they're being hunted because if, if you spook them out, uh, they'll run all the way out. I've seen them run across sagebrush step four or five miles. 
right in the open. Uh, sometimes they get shot by hunters just driving by and just leave that preferred habitat once you're spooked. We'll go right up, right back up. It's a trick. So you really have to help hunt stealthily. So, and not let them know they're being hunted. Now, you would think that these elk that are in these more, um, call it civilized areas, would be easy to hunt, but they're actually quite wary. They get really tuned in to, to uh, predation or, or hunting by humans. They really become adept at understanding the patterns of when they should hear ATVs, when they should not hear ATVs, when they should hear tractors, people moving on roads, uh, smell people around houses. So, but if they find something that's off normal, then often they will react and either run along the river bottom or, or hopefully not leave the area entirely. So I'm mainly hunting from blinds. I'm hunting either from ground blinds and there's a lot of portable ground blinds uh, that you can use. You want to brush those in carefully because the elk will spot those on the ground or uh, out of tree stands. Uh, what, what else I do is I try to move strictly in the dark. So I'm moving well before first light and I leave, you know, after shooting time ends in the dark. And if I come out during the day, I don't always, then I try to move mostly around noon to come out just because there's not much elk activity uh, during that time. Another factor that I try to minimize scent. So uh, if you can have access to a shower and a lot of even uh, KOAs or small campgrounds, if you're not staying there, you can actually drive to them and pay a few dollars and, and take a shower. I really like the scent killer type sprays. You know, a lot of this I was thinking really sounds kind of like Eastern whitetail hunting. So I think if you're listening to podcasts and you're from the East, and you're a white tail hunter, you're like, man, a lot of that sounds familiar. And it really is. Uh, you know, once you understand to learn to dial in to the areas of where the elk are, uh, you can apply a lot of those same techniques you use for very wary, very sen sensitive white tails uh, to the elk as well. Yeah. And for, you know, a lot of Eastern guys, that might be really comfortable for them, whereas backpacking in might not be so comfortable. Backpacking in several miles is never comfortable, even if you live out west at high elevation. And as you know, it's easy to overestimate the country out here. You have your maps, you have your onyx, you plan your routes, and you get there, and you're like, wow. So this is a whole different type of elk hunting at low elevation. Yeah, so do you call it all even when you're in the blind? Yeah, that's another factor. I do, I do call and I've called in a lot of elk. I think if you get a satellite elk, satellite elk, or if you get a lone bull, it can be quite effective. I got a six by six last year and I called uh, just like two or three cow calls that come running right in, right in to, to my area. But what I found is that there's other hunters and these elk and these older cows, they get very sensitive to calling. And what I find about, you know, almost half the time you see a herd of elk coming through and even two or three cow calls, because I really don't bugle, I just cow call mainly, they'll stop, they'll listen. And I've had a lot of cases where that lead cow, she'll just turn that herd away and they'll just leave just with a few cow calls. And so they can get very sensitive to calling in these areas, just anything that's not quite right. I have a, a story where I put a deer decoy out because my daughter had deer tag too and that lead cow just saw it and she would not come close enough saw that uh, deer decoy didn't really know what it was but something was wrong and she led that herd away it cost us a, a nice a nice bull she drew a rare rifle tag in that case uh a few minutes later a couple hours later a pretty nice mule deer buck come right to the decoy and was just fine so these are very wary elk. Anything that's off normal, including calling, uh, sometimes it works, but often they'll just spook, spook them out. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that they they are really wary, and I think especially when they're down around that farm equipment and things that you would think that the human presence they wouldn't like to be around, they really don't mind it, but they're just very tuned in to where things are supposed to be and what seems off. Exactly right. And if, if you take a, a migratory elk that left the, 
the winter range is up high high elevation in the mountains you know they haven't smelled a human all all year so now hunters move many miles into the mountains you know the slightest whiff of human odor odor and, and they're going to spook right that's what typically happens but these resin elk or these inter intermediate elk that move in they're in these populate population areas i mean they're out feeding the fields near farmhouses at night they're smelling people all the time and so they're also less sensitive to human scent i mean they certainly i've had many cases where they have smell being left but i've had quite a few other cases where they've come in downwind now i, I try to do uh, scent control but you know you can't get rid of your scent entirely but they'll still come in and i'll still will harvest that that uh that cow or bull Awesome. So I have a story, probably we have time for one hunting story. Oh, absolutely. We have time. Yeah. So this give an example of the excitement of hunting low elevation hotspots. So this is uh, two years ago. I hunted opening day, which is August 30th uh, in Idaho here. And I hunted uh, the whole day in this area. And pretty much my main excitement was I had a large bull moose that came in and was stripping off the uh, br browsing on the on the willows right next to my stand for quite a while. That was exciting. But I saw one elk with binoculars a distance away, and there really wasn't any activity that I could see. Didn't really see any fresh tracks or droppings. Very little sign. But I came back uh, three days later because I know this is an area that the elk will in immediate elk would transition into so i was hoping that they were they would have come down so just three days later and i was in uh, an area that was a lot of brush so there was really only one small cottonwood tree that i could get my stand into and so my stand was where my feet was it was not much more than 10 feet above the ground i'd like to be higher I like to be more camouflaged because the kind of foliage kind of petered out. So I really stood out. And I know if I had a whitetail hunter from Michigan, I have a lot of them from Michigan originally mm -hmm. came out, they'd be like, man, you can see that stand 100 yards away. That's no good. But elk, you know, if you don't move, if you're in a tree stand and if you don't move, they really aren't going to see you. Now, if you move, they, they will see you, but uh, they really don't see you. Uh, they, they, they really study the ground, however. So I was in this tree and maybe about an hour in the evening and i just heard like a whole herd of elk coming and elk are interesting because they can move through this thick brush and they will not make a noise unless they want to and, and if they don't care they're not spooked i mean i don't even think they even knew it was hunting season uh they just make a lot of noise and so this is a time when they were just making a lot of noise they were they were pretty much browsing on the on the willow brush that day if you see them all stripping off the leaves, I could I could see in the distance, I could see the tops of the brush move. Uh, I could hear them. I think there were some mock fights, but nothing serious because this is early season. And just a lot of noise of, of elk coming through. And I said they're kind of heading my direction, so I wasn't calling because I call mainly for steering and directional changes rather than calling an elk in it. And unless there's like a lone satellite bull or, or a lone lone bull, especially they can be they can call those in pretty nicely. So I was uh, in my stand, and the first two finally come through. Everything was not spooked; they were just feeding, grazing, but mostly browsing. The first two came by, and they were spikes. I wasn't too interested in them, and they came as I'm facing the oncoming elk. They came to the right. Now, when I put the stand up a few weeks ago, I had. An opening to my right, a small opening, then I had a pretty nice opening, a little bit straight ahead to the left, and I had a whole nice opening to the left because I'm kind of on the edge of the thick brush to where it transitioned between brush and, and grass. And I look and my opening was not there. So I don't know if the tree branch moved in the in the wind or something happened, but I had an opening now it was completely covered up. So they were there like 10 yards away feeding. Oh. And that was and that was fine. I didn't really want those, but that was fine. And then I see some more elk. They're all just all kinds of noise. They see some more elk coming and they were uh, to, to my left. 
And then they emerged and it was a, a small, like a raghorn bull, I don't know, like a two by three. And then another one come and it was like a same size, a small bull. And they were feeding like 15, 20 yards away. Now I'm always worried because there wasn't really much wind, but I think the thermal currents were going behind me and these spike were now behind me. So you always do worry about them smelling you when they're so close, but, but they didn't. And then this uh, pretty nice five by five bull elk came and um, it wasn't a huge bull, but it was one that I was gonna take. He, but he came to the right, I mean, you would have guessed that. And he just come right up and actually was, was grazing on my, uh, my cottonwood tree. And I had a couple cluster of like three small cottonwood trees. And he was actually right in there grazing, tearing off the, the, the branches off my cottonwood and he was less than 10 yards. And I was just looking, trying to get a shot because he was like less than 10 yards. But, you know, I started bull hunting over 40 years ago. And what I found is just the smallest twig, the smallest branch can just, you know, just catch an arrow and, and veer it off, off course. And you just never want to wound an elk. Now it only have to go like a foot more, but it could turn that sideways and maybe ruin the penetration. So, just couldn't see quite a shot so he was there just browsing and he was there like for 10 minutes but he was right at my stand it was interesting because when he'd reach up to strip off a branch i mean his nose was i don't know if it's much more than 10 feet away from my feet i mean he was just right there <laughs> you know but either um, maybe he smelled something but again in these areas they, they get used to human scent so the key is to knock it down low enough that they just don't alarm. So anyhow, he was there. And then I see to my left, I see there's some more elk coming. I can see all the branches, you know, they're just raking their antlers. So, uh, so when you're in a tree stand, you kind of have to twist your body very slowly to, to get the right angle to pull. So I'm twisting left now. And then um, a bull comes out, another small bull, two by three or something, three by four. And he comes out and so, okay, I'm ready to pull back. And, and then, and then um, another one's coming. Look, look, that was a bigger one. So I'm looking left and I, I can see in the corner of my eye to the right that that five by five, he turned and he walked back to the direction that he came in from. And I knew I couldn't get a shot. So I'm still facing left, waiting for the other one to come out. And it's like a, it's like a minute or two later, I see, uh, I see that five by five come back, just kind of the corner of my eye. I see him come back. He must have turned around and he went right to my tree and was just uh, browsing away right below my tree. So the other one came out, another small bull, and they're just standing there. So I'm kind of facing left. And then on the corner of my eye, I can see that that bull below, below me, that five by five, raised his head. And I could see that he was going to come, come across to join the other bull. So I got ready and he crossed through the, that little brush there. So I pulled back as he was crossing, and when he hit the opening at 15 yards, I shot, you know, angling away. So I'm aiming at the the off shoulder mm -hmm. to get the right angle going through, and uh, the arrow hit perfect, pretty much perfectly. So he starts running out, and I'm like, man, that's a nice bull. And I'm looking at it, and it's it it's actually this like this six by six herd bull. So what had happened was when that five by five walked back and out of sight and I'm looking left, they switched bulls and that six by six came in. So it goes running out there standing. And I'm like, man, that's a nice bull. He went standing about 75 yards with the two, two other smaller bulls that were over there and just standing there like he wasn't hit, but I saw the arrow went through, you know, two thirds of penetrated like two thirds of the bull. And um, then he goes walking off slowly. So, I got down out of the tree. Now you don't want to start tracking right away because you can run your elk off. But I just wanted to go and peek around that one bush to see where he went. And so I got down out of the tree and just went like 40 yards to peek around this bush where I couldn't see. I'll never forget, there were 11 bull elk, including that five by five, all standing almost like shoulder to shoulder looking at me. Oh. They must've heard me you know, come down and they were all just standing there. They were all bull elk, not a cow in sight. 11 of them so they saw me and they run out and I'm like huh and then but I didn't see the six by six so that was a good sign and in fact he was just 
uh, when I went waited an hour because I had a good blood trail, so I was pretty sure I saw where it hit, so I knew I could I could track him. And he only went a couple more steps from where I last could see him. But it's very interesting because uh, these elk had just moved in because I know they weren't there earlier. And this was, I call him a herd bull of bulls because he was acting like a herd bull. He was always stayed very cautiously in the middle of all those other bulls. And he's protected by all the eyes, the ears, the noses of his bull harem, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was able to just pluck him out of the middle, which was really a great hunt. Um, He's yeah, a Pope and young bull. I, yeah, well over 300. So he was a you know quite a nice bull. Yeah, that's awesome. And and doing it you know through your stealth tactics like you were talking about. I know that you know everybody wants to you know interact with elk and call and whatever. But honestly, unless you really know what you're doing, like it can be hard, especially with a herd bull like you're talking about trying to convince them to go away from you. I think being being quiet and stealthy is really good it's like a really good tactic to use uh if you can um with your blinds and your tree stands are there any specific places that you're trying to put those like are you trying to put them on trails or just places you know like on the edge of where you've seen them feeding or how do you do that yeah depending on what type of river country you're hunting you obviously want to be in bigger trees and so Cottonwoods are a bigger tree if you can find them, but I've put stands in cottonwoods and aspen trees. I've even put stands in Russian olive with Russian olives because the area I hunted only had Russian olive trees. That's not advised because they're full of thorns, so you have to be very careful. So you want to get up into, if you're doing a tree stand, I like to get up 15, 20 feet and be tucked in there if you if you can't get that that high. So, you know, a lot of times, just that intersection of multiple trails you know sometimes the elk are moving more along the edge of the brush and sometimes they're moving along uh, in the brush itself in the trails it was a couple years two or three years ago where the elk were just not moving through the brush like they normally do they were just always on the outside but i had game cameras out and i had several mountain lions in there that uh pictures of every day I'd, every time I checked it I have multiple pictures of mountain lions and so in that particular case they were being predated on probably by mountain lions and so they were working more at the edge of the brush uh, the one area I hunted last year the, the river was really quite quite low I mean there was low water and they were moving up and down the river more than the brush because they could they could see better yeah, I think yeah animals are pretty cool Yes, they are. Cool. Well, uh, do you want to roll into closing statements or is, do you want to uh, tell another story? Uh, I think we say that for the next time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have a lot in my book. I have a lot of uh, tracking details, uh, a lot of uh, tracking advice, especially with bull elk. They've been hit by arrows. And that might be inter- interesting future podcast, but I don't think we have time for that now. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. And, you know, people should certainly go try the book. I've been, I haven't been reading it cover to cover. I've been like cherry picking a little bit through it, but I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Just for a couple of final statements. uh, The first one is that we choose to hunt elk in traditional high elevation habitat. You know, that's your choice. And it's a great choice. I I love hunting the mountains. I hunt the mountains for, for mule deer almost exclusively each year. I, I love to be in the mountains, beautiful country. But the reality of the change in environment of the West is that you, that probably means that you're gonna see less elk than in previous years. That's just the reality of what's going on. And so I've wrote, written this book. Uh, so you wanna hunt the West for elk, low elevation hotspots, just to provide another new option, a new strategy to uh, find and hunt elk at low elevation. And it's something I've been focused on for the last 15 years. And I do it because for me, I have better hunting. I see more elk. I've been able to harvest bigger elk. So it can be a a very good tactic. Yeah. And, you know, like you're saying, you know, a lot of people can underestimate how big the mountains are and, and whatnot. I think people underestimate how big elk are also and how tough they are to get out. 
of an area. And uh, I certainly think that, especially for, you know, this is for any, this is for everybody, but um, especially for folks coming out first time, like doing something a little more low elevation where you might be staying at a campground or a little cushier camp or something could be a way to dip your toes in the water instead of just, uh, you know, going all in and trying to do some kind of a backpack adventure that, uh, you know, I, I talk to folks every once in a while that been, have been going to, you know, this, the same unit, wherever that may be for the last few years. And they, you know, maybe seen one or two elk total. And that can be frustrating. And it doesn't have to be uh, an either or strategy necessarily like the areas that I, that I hunt typically are mostly high mountains. So a unit or, or a zone, depending on what it's defined as, is usually a very large area. So in your hunting area, you're going to have both high elevation, low elevation areas. So you can also de- devise a strategy where you can hunt traditionally and then use this as a backup. And once you understand where the elk are at low elevation, maybe that'll be your prime spot for the next time. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was a ton of great information. Um, thanks again for coming on, Dan. And I, uh, where can people find your, find your book? Yeah, just on Amazon is probably the best way. I have the hardcover, the paperback, and the Kindle versions. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks again for coming on, and we'll have you on again soon. Okay, thank you.